Good morning, everyone. My name is Adam Rowe. I'm the student ministry pastor at our Wilmington campus, and I am thrilled, thrilled to be here with you this morning. But before we get started, I just want to say to all of you who are in here wearing that gray t-shirt, to every one of you who serves in Kidstown, I just want to say personally thank you. As a student ministry pastor, every single year I get this incoming crop of healthy and vibrant and crazy sixth graders, and that is... It's in large part due to what you guys do, the thousands and thousands of hours that you pour into our kids. I just, it's amazing, thank you. And as the very unbelievably proud father of a little one-year-old, when I bring him in in Wilmington and I drop him off with you guys and I know that he's loved and he's cared and he's held and that he just, he loves being there, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I will be personally serving in, like Dave said, I'll be serving in August. I would encourage you, take that card, look at it, fill it out, and you will have an amazing time. In fact, you might have such a good time that you end up signing the card for the rest of the year and coming back next year as well. It's an unbelievable way to faith parent and to get to share the gospel with others. So thank you, Kids Town. So when we decided that we were going to do a series on neighboring, I found myself incredibly excited about it. Uh, in Wilmington, we had read through The Neighboring Church, which Brian mentioned last week. And as we read through this book last year, I just found myself captivated, like absolutely enthralled by this. Thinking to myself as I read it, all these questions that were just running through my head, like what if, what if the gospel, what if it's far simpler than I ever thought? And what if my role in making disciples of all nations, what if that really comes down to, I mean, what if it just starts with being a good neighbor? And what if our role as the church, it's less about setting walls and protecting ourselves and defending our faith. What if it's more about taking great joy in each and every person that God brings into our sphere of influence? And so I've been like wrestling with this and absolutely captivated by this idea for at least the last year. And I'm thrilled for the chance to get to share what God's been doing in my heart here with all of you this morning. But I think what we're hopeful, what we're hopeful for as a community is that we aren't just teaching and learning and nodding our heads, but that we are participating together. This is us uh, working through a journey together as one community. So what I'm going to ask this morning is for a little bit of participation. Uh, wherever you're at, whether you're in this room, on another campus, watching online, wherever you're at, I'm going to ask two things of you. I'm going to pray for us in just a sec, and I will be praying for us as a community. And if you... If you felt like God has been maybe tugging at your heart a little bit, and if you are open to what he might have to say to you today, will you just, as I pray, will you have your hands open in front of you? It's just a simple physical reminder of a spiritual reality, saying, God, I am open. Fill me. Tell me what you want of me. And then second, if you hear something that I say that you agree with or something that, that I say that you want for your own life as well, will you just respond? Will you say amen, say yes, Lord, say let it be so, whatever it is. You can do it quietly inside or if you want, I would love for you to say it out loud. JR in Wilmington, I'm thinking about you in the back. I would love this. Just say to God, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. I am not just sitting here hearing somebody talk. I am praying with you. So let's pray together. Amen. <laughs> That's right. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to be a family. 
And Lord, thank you for what you've taught us over these last couple weeks and for what I know you have for us this morning. So this morning, as we come to you, Lord, and we ask for direction and guidance, as we ask you, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? My prayer for us as a community is that you will light our hearts on fire that you will ignite in us a passion for our neighbors, for our communities, and for each and every person we have both near and far to have an interaction with. And Lord, I ask that you would give us specific direction, that you would speak to each person in here, give them a name, give them a face, give them a situation, give them an idea, give them this like exciting passion, give them something this morning that you as their heavenly father are walking ahead of them into already. Lord, I ask that you invite us into the adventure. And we thank you in advance that you've done this. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So we're on week three of our series on neighboring. And we started, Brian kind of started with this idea that is central to the teachings of Jesus, that we are to love God with everything in us, absolutely everything. And then we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And this is the central kind of underlying, underpinning idea that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then last week he said, okay, if if we're to love our neighbors as ourselves, it has to start with us getting to know them. So neighbors have to know their neighbors in order to love them. That seems pretty basic. And this morning, the task that I've been given is, I think it's exciting, it is simple, and it's honestly really fun, and so I'm excited about it to be here with you. But before we get there, I'd like to, to kind of frame our whole discussion with this beautiful story that comes out of Luke chapter 7. So she found herself standing on this street, across the street, and just down a little bit. Her eyes focused on this beautiful, well-appointed house, watching all the equally beautiful, well-dressed people walk in. They were excited. You could tell they were talking animatedly and they were laughing. But they they held themselves with this kind of composure, this, this muted sense that they were entering holy ground. And she, like others around her, she had heard the rumors, and the rumors are what had drawn her here. She had heard that he might be coming, that he might be a part of this thing, that he might have been invited to this, this feast, this party, and so she had shown up to see. She didn't know exactly what she was going to do, but she had to know what he was actually like. So she stood there across the street and she watched this house and all these people. And every time they looked at her, she'd drop her eyes. After a little while, there was a commotion down at the far end of the street. And so she, she looked and she strained her eyes and she walked as this crowd came around the corner, all seemingly gathered around the same person. As they drew closer, she started to make it out, and she saw that there was a man there in the middle. And as she saw him, her heart, it just caught in her throat. Tears sprang to her eyes. Her her hands started to shake. She almost dropped the alabaster jar that she was carrying clutched to her chest. She watched them approach, and she found herself drawn to him. There was something, something about him. As he got closer, she could tell, yes, it, it was. From everything she'd heard, it was the one that she had heard called Jesus. And interestingly enough, the the stories that she'd heard, these stories of power, they didn't match this simple man walking down the street. But there was something about him. There was this sparkle in his eyes, this like joy and and life that, that she was just drawn to. And in fact, as she watched, he put a hand out and his head kicked back and he laughed so hard that he had to hold on to somebody else for uh for stability. 
And she watched this crowd around him. She watched them absolutely drink it in. As they got closer to the house and they approached, some of them started to peel off and she realized they weren't all invited to this particular party. And the whole crowd stayed with him, talking with him, laughing with him, right up until the point when he got to the door, bid them goodbye, and walked on in. And so she stood there across the street watching this house as night fell and as the crowd dispersed, her heart pounding and her hands still shaking. And she finally took one stabilizing breath and took a step out and started to walk. Question for you. If you found yourself in this situation, if you were standing there, what would you do? Would you have the courage to actually walk across the street? Because I think most of us can identify with this spot. Most of us feel like we know what it's like to be on the outside looking in, to feel like we are an outsider, like we are not invited, we are not a part of this thing, we don't fit in there. So we know we've stood in this spot and we know how hard it is and how painful it is to try to move in past that. So what would you do? Would you have the courage to actually walk forward and into this house filled with people? People who are all well put together and look perfect. People who won't even look at you, let alone acknowledge you. Second question, who do you identify with in this story? My assumption is most of us probably identify with her because I I placed it from her perspective and because um, we've all kind of been in a situation like that. But I've been thinking all week about this story and the more I think about it, the more I think that to many of our neighbors, uh, we are probably more like these people over here entering the house. To many of them, when they look at us, we are well put together. We present this perfect image. We're well-dressed. We walk into our well-appointed, beautiful buildings with our beautiful smiles on our faces. And to many of our neighbors, they look at us and they, they feel like they don't fit or they don't belong. And if we're serious about our faith, then we're serious about people coming to know Jesus. If we're in any way serious about it, I mean, we know the Great Commission that God has called us, that Jesus said to us, you will make disciples of all people. And so we pray and we beg God, will you please, will you please bring people in? Will you bring them into our worship gatherings? Do you bring them into our community? Will you help us speak to them? And then we wonder why they're so reluctant. They clearly seem drawn to Jesus, but maybe not so drawn to us. So what does she do? Well, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited to a party. It's a feast that's being hosted at the house of this Pharisee, and he's invited along with all of these other people. And we're introduced to this woman um, who is just called a certain immoral woman, so clearly people have this idea of what she's like. And the, the whole story is actually pretty short. So I had to do a little bit of sanctified imagining to figure out maybe what it would have been like, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to think that she probably stood there for a while wondering whether or not she was going to actually walk into this house and crash this particular party, and crash this party she did. I think to the consternation of both the host and to many others there. So we'll look at, in just a little bit, we'll look at exactly what happened, but I've got one more, I think, central question for us this morning. And that question is why? Why would she do this? 
What would cause, what would cause this woman to push through that sense? I mean, we felt that. How often do we actually stay on the sidelines because it's so painful and hard? But what would cause her to actually walk in, to push into this group of people where she clearly didn't feel like she belonged and where they actually would speak that to her? What would cause her to walk into this and pursue Jesus anyways? Because I think that question is key to the idea of neighboring. What was it about Jesus that drew her? What was it about Jesus that we need to emulate? What would cause her to do something so frightening? I've been thinking a lot about this over the last two weeks, thinking and praying and ask God, and I feel like what I am discovering and what I hear God speaking to me is awesome. It is exciting, it is simple, and it is honestly really fun, and it's what I get to call us to this morning. But before we get to that and look at her exactly, what I think answers this question is a story that happened a little bit beforehand in John chapter 2. The only way to really understand this woman standing here is to look at another story and another party that Jesus was invited to, the wedding at Cana. So let's look at that together. The next day there was a wedding celebration, John says. In the village of Cana in Galilee, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Now, let's pause here for a second, because I think this this exchange right here is, is fascinating to me. How interesting is this whole thing here? The wine has run out which is a significantly embarrassing event for this family because they have their whole community there. It's not just their family, it's their extended family, it's their community, it's everybody that they interact with on a daily basis. And to run out of the wine was a big deal. So Mary, Jesus' mother, she actually notices this. And she says something to him about it. And for most of us, that would be, we would say, oh, that, that stinks, or I mean, that's, that's a, I don't know what you want me to do about it. But Jesus clearly senses that she wants something from him, and she clearly is hinting that maybe he should do something about it. As I've been reading it, I thought to myself, I wonder how many other odd requests she has made of him over the years. Because he picked up what she was saying here. And here's what he responds back. He says, dear woman, this is not our problem. My time has not yet come. Quick question for all of us. How many of us have a mother who always knows what's best for us in any given situation? <laughs> so does Jesus. Yeah. How, how many of you are mothers who always know what's best? Yeah. This situation is awesome. It's beautiful and it's so human. And what happens is this. He responds to his mother. She hears him clearly. She promptly ignores him. And she talks to the servants and just says this. Do whatever he tells you. Kind of like, here you go, Jesus. Like, go, go do something, my son. And so Jesus actually steps into this situation in what I think is a really interesting way. And as an aside, we learn today that when we do what our mothers say, we are being like Jesus. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Moms, you can send gift cards to aro@grace.org. You're welcome. But let's watch next what Jesus does, because I think if we're honest about it and we treat it like a story we maybe haven't heard a hundred times, it's really bizarre. It says this, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. 
Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. And I'm sure, again, I feel like the servant is probably thinking, it's time to polish up my resume because this is going to get me fired. But he brings this cup of water, basically, to the master of ceremonies, and this is what happens. The master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, those servants knew. He called the bridegroom over, and he said this. He said, a host always serves the best wine first. Then when everyone's had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you, you've kept the best for last. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, for those of you who are terrible at math like I am, this is somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. And I find this fascinating because here is Jesus and his very first, his very first miracle. It says the revelation of his glory is keeping the party going. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And apparently more than that, he didn't skimp. This isn't some bottom of the shelf stuff. This is the good stuff. He brought out something that not only prevented embarrassment, he actually brought greater honor to this family. And I love that. And I find it so intriguing because all week I've been wrestling with this idea that, that this is Jesus. Jesus has got a lot on his plate. And it feels to me like uh, that maybe this kind of social awareness should be below him. He's got, he's got the whole world to save that he's there for. He's going up against sin and death itself. He is working at this moment to establish the church, the community of believers that will live for a thousand, two thousand years into the future to this moment right now where we are. And yet he notices this situation and he does something about it and he keeps the party going. There's a lot of artwork on this. I kind of looked around and, and I found this beautiful painting right here. And I love it. Jesus there looking remarkably European for a first century Jew. <laughs> He's sitting at the feast. You can see the stone jars in front of him. You can see up in the upper right, there's a band. There are servers wandering around. They're serving food. They're pouring drinks. People are laughing. They're talking. They're eating lavish dishes. You've got Mary there right behind him. And Jesus is right in the middle of it. And I know, I know this, this, this painter, he had to use, you know, a little sanctified imagining as well. But I think Jesus is right in the middle of it on purpose. And I think he has Jesus right in the exact right spot. Because interestingly, when we look at the Gospels, it seems pretty clear that Jesus liked parties. So how do we know that? Well, let's go back to the story here. Right before this, so Luke tells us this story about this nervous woman wanting to walk in, but right before, there's a conversation. And what Luke is doing is he's kind of setting up what's about to happen. He's giving us a little context, and then he's giving us this story. And here's the context. Jesus is talking about kind of some name-calling that's happening. He's talking about his cousin John, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has been getting slandered, and so has he. And this is what he says about them. He says, for John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, he's possessed by a demon. The son of man, talking about himself, 
So the Son of Man, I, on the other hand, feast and drink. And you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. In other words, he's saying John is an ascetic. He like refrains from all this stuff and you call him names. I am not. I participate in all of these social things with people and you call me names. He's calling out this hypocrisy in the middle. But there's two very interesting things in this. He says, you call me a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. So very clearly, Jesus spent a lot of time with regular, everyday, sinful, broken, normal people. And he didn't just like hang out with them. He, he spent all sorts of time with them. He feasted with them. He drank wine with them. He talked with them. He laughed. He loved them. He was a part of this. He was a part of it so much that the good, normal, religious people started to get uncomfortable. And number two, apparently he liked being with them and spending time over a good meal. So much so that all the Pharisees and, the, and these people, they started to question him. But the non-religious folks, the regular everyday folks, they loved him. They flocked to him. They were drawn to him everywhere he goes. And his first miracle, the revelation of his glory, is keeping the party going. He spent so much time enjoying regular people that he came under attack by the good people. And I think it's the thing that makes this interaction with this woman make so much sense. Because he had this history, this history of being a part of this kind of life and being with people and spending time and loving them. And so it makes what happens here with her make a ton of sense to us in that light. So let's see what ha actually happened. Luke chapter 7 says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. And she wiped, oh, her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When's the last time someone has loved you so much that they have wept at your feet? That is an intense love for Jesus. Here's this woman, this woman that has this, this past that clearly people, people are aware of. She's got this past and, and she's clearly not invited to this thing. She clearly doesn't belong. And yet she walks in anyways. So back to my question from before, why would she do that? And I think the answer is simple and it's beautiful. And it's just this. I think it's because Jesus liked people like her, and she knew it. Jesus liked people like her, and she knew it. She was aware. It didn't matter what the other people thought. She knew from what she had heard, from what she had seen, from the stories she had heard from other people, that Jesus liked people like her. In this series, we're talking all about neighboring. And how is it that Jesus showed us how to be good neighbors? And I think Jesus spent so much time outside of the walls of his synagogue, so much time with regular people. He showed them so much constant care and affection that they just knew it. And I think I can sum it up like this in a little bit of a humorous way. I think what we need to do to be more like Jesus with our neighbors is we need to party like Jesus. 
We have to party like Jesus. I really think it's that simple. We have to spend time with people. We have to have them over. We have to go to their place. We have to have meals with them. We have to share life with them. We have to to laugh with them. We have to know their kids, know their dogs, know what kind of guacamole they like. We have to be with people. And they have to know how much we care for them. If we enjoy life with our neighbors, they will enjoy it with us. Enjoy life with your neighbors, and they will enjoy it with you. Often, I think what we've done is we've taken this kind of this anti-cultural stance. We've, we've put up walls, and there are certain things. I'm a youth pastor. I know there are certain things that we need to protect those of us who are younger from. But for the rest of the church, for those of us who are adults, who are mature, who have grown up into this, our role is not to put up walls and to protect ourselves and to keep the world out. Our role is to be out there living like Jesus with people that Jesus likes. Amen. Amen. When we enjoy people, when we actually go with them and we enjoy food and drink and laughter with people, what we're doing is we're actually inviting them in to the goodness of the kingdom of God. There's this promise in scripture that someday we will all sit down to this feast, this welcome feast. And what we're saying is like, let's, let's practice that now. Let's experience that now. When I go away on mission trips or to youth camps or things like that with students, we always talk about this fact that, that there's this different sense when we're there and we're together and we're living and pursuing the gospel together. And I always try to explain what it is, is, is we're tasting heaven. We're getting a taste of what it's like when we're all living this way and living together. And we have the beautiful and divine opportunity and privilege to invite other people into that. To give them a a taste of the wedding feast. To enjoy life with them and let them know that we enjoy them. Maybe it's time for Christians to start being known as the life of the party rather than the killjoy. My parents exemplified this for me when I was a kid. My dad's a pastor. My mom's been involved in ministry my whole life. Uh, my dad's actually, at the end of this month, he's retiring after 41 years of full-time ministry. Yeah. Honestly, they're, they're my heroes. They're the reason I'm standing here and doing this today. And when I was young, we were living in Hudson, New Hampshire, Uh, We were living in this tiny little under a thousand square foot house with three kids, but my parents wanted to be hospitable. They wanted to do something like this. They wanted to bring in their neighbors and their friends in a way where they could all connect and, and be with each other. And so, as my mom puts it, they stole an idea that they heard elsewhere, that they'd seen elsewhere, and they kind of made it their own. And they started hosting what they called one home progressive dinners. They would invite 16 neighbors and friends over, And we would all be in this house together and there'd be four tables in four different rooms and one of them actually would go into their bedroom. And so one person would have to sit on the bed and they'd bring the table and shove it up against them and then three other people. So you weren't getting out until that course was over. And we, the kids, uh, the way my mom puts it is instead of getting you a, a babysitter, we wanted you to participate. So we served the food, we carried water, we, we gave people things, and then we would blow this train whistle like to, to signify, okay, it's time to move on. And they would bring in a whole mixture of people, people they knew well, people they didn't know well, and they'd mix them all up and we'd get a chance to know each other. And we as kids were, were like right along in this, like with our neighbors, partying kind of with them, getting to know them, laughing with them. 
In fact, the best story from all of this is one at one of these particular ones. Apparently my sister, she's about five maybe at the time, and she was serving ice. She was going around from table to table. And after she had served it and plunked it in everyone's glasses, she was walking away, and one of the guests noticed that she was licking the ice. (laughs) That makes an impact. I really think that hospitality is our first step in all of this. Hospitality is absolutely key to this. And what's beautiful about this is that we don't have to manufacture these relationships. Your heavenly father, God almighty, he is walking ahead of you and he will lead you into these things. Just last week, I was driving home. I I listened to Brian and I was thinking about, okay, God, I need to know my neighbors better. And I was was really wrestling with this and I was asking him. And then I, I got home and I pulled my car in And two spaces down, there was one of my neighbors who I've never met. But for at least a year and a half, ever since I got the car that I'm currently driving, I've noticed this car because it's the same car. You kind of know how that happens. You never notice a car until you own one like it. And so I've always wondered about this person. And it turns out he has always wondered about me. So I get out of my car and he kind of, he's doing like spring cleaning and he pops his head out and he's like, he's like, oh, the Sonata guy. And he comes walking over and we meet and we shake hands and we stand and we, we talk for a good 15 or 20 minutes about life and where you're from and, and all this kind of who, who is moving in, who's moving out, how do you like the car, what, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. And I remember I walked into the house and I thought to myself, God, that is, that is just like you. I think to myself, God, how do I get to know my neighbors better? And then you're like, well, they're wondering about you already. <laughs> this is an adventure that we're called into. And this happens all the time. When we wake up in the morning, if we will just throw our feet over the edge of the bed, if we will open our hands and say, God, what do you have for me this morning? Who do you have for me to interact with? What person are you going to bring along my path? What situation are you putting on my heart? Then your father, I promise you, he is ahead of you already, and he will bring these people into your path. He will bring situations to you, and he will speak through you, through the Holy Spirit, when the time comes. It's beautiful. It's awesome. It's an adventure. It's an incredible kingdom-minded way to live, and we get to live it, and we get to invite other people into it. I was talking to Pastor Tom Van Antwerp in in Wilmington about this this week, and I kind of told him about my topic, and, and there was a pause, and he just looked at me, and he said, simply, he said, open doors, open doors. And I thought, oh, Tom, that's brilliant. I'm totally stealing that. But open doors, open doors. In other words, when we open our doors to other people, it opens our doors into their life. When we actually enjoy and live life with other people, they will enjoy it and live life with us. What a beautiful calling. What an incredible heavenly father. What an amazing life that he allows us to lead as we follow him into it. So this week, my hope and prayer for you is that you will enjoy life with your neighbors and then they, therefore they will enjoy it with you. It's simple. Let's party like Jesus with our neighbors. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to be here. We're grateful that you have invited us in already. Uh, We know what it's like to be on the outside and you have said, come, come to me, be a part of this. Here's your family and here's your community. And Lord, you have so many others that you want in that life with us. 
So this morning, Lord, I pray that you would put specific names, specific people, specific situations on our hearts, in our minds, just bring them to us, and then we will just stumble over them throughout the week. We would go home and we would run into this person. We would have a conversation. Something would come up. Somebody else would say, you know, I was thinking we should do this. Lord, I ask that you would provide miraculous opportunities for us to love our neighbors, and that when we're with our neighbors, your spirit would pour out of us into them that you would just give us this incredible affection and love that we would enjoy life with them and that they would enjoy life with us for your son's glory and his name. In the name of Jesus, amen.